You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we come now asking you to speak to us through your word. Lord, may the preaching of your word be your word for the sake and glory of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look with us at the Hebrew passage, our New Testament passage this morning that was read just a few minutes ago, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 29 is where we'll pick up today. Um, I often find that Christians and non-Christians alike can have defective views of what the Christian life really is. Um, For this reason, I think it's important we have a collect, and one of my favorite collects, that says to read, study, mark, and inwardly digest the very word of God. Hearing and studying the word of God aims to bring our views of God and his ways more and more into alignment with his truth. For the unbeliever, it's done in hopes that we might, they might embrace Christianity on the basis of the true picture of what it looks like rather than a distorted one. And for the believer, so that you can live your lives on the basis of true views and God, of God and his ways rather than distorted and deluded and discouraging views. This passage today in Hebrews chapter 11, the preacher, as he's called in Hebrews, uh, is going to hopefully lift some fog away from some confusion of what it looks like to live in the Christian life through faith. Now, the first critical element of faith, I believe, now hear me on this, It's going to sound weird, but the critical thing about faith is we must be discontent. Now, what do I mean by that? I know know that sounds odd to be in church. We're supposed to be content. We're supposed to uh, find contentment in all ways. But faith is the things that are hoped for. If you hope your current reality is not what you hope it will be, right? For instance, you hope your marriage will someday look like this. And that usually means that it's not that way now. Or maybe you hope your checking account looks like this, and it's not that way now, so we hope. Or you might hope that a lost family member will give their life to Jesus. It means they've not yet done so. So there's a bit of discontentment that has to happen in us because we live in an alien world, in a foreign place. This is not our home, and the kingdom of God doesn't look like this, but it's our hope that the kingdom of God and earth, as we pray it every week, will one day be the same. There are many today who teach that life, uh, the life of faith is about health, wealth, and prosperity. And where those things are lacking, it's because you don't have faith. Well, that teaching just doesn't square up with Scripture, however, and we're going to see that today. It's going to have an an incredible impact, I hope, on the way that we think about faith. The issue is that when we start to experience contentment, we find that our faith and our actions become lazy at times. Think about it for a minute, and I, I don't think I'm the only one that this happens to, but when do we often have a faithful prayer life? It's not when things are going well. Our prayers tend to be lacking when things are going well. Well, everything's good, God. I don't really need to pray to you that much, right? But when there's a lack of something in the checking account or the relationships are not thriving as they should be, then our prayer life becomes deeper. Our faith is deepened because we rely on the Lord. So discontentment leads us 
into pressing into God. So let's look at what God does through faith in the book of Hebrews, starting in verse 29. And I'm not going to read it to you again, but just talking about 30, 29 through 35 here. Through our faith, God can and does work miracles and acts of providence to bring practical earthly help and deliverance to his people at times. What I mean by miracles is works of God that involve some extraordinary interpretation in the natural cause and effect way that nature works. So the writer makes reference, for example, in verse 29, the dividing of the Red Sea. In verse 30, the falling down of the walls of Jericho. In verse 33, the Daniel and the shutting of the mouths of the lions. He doesn't go into detail there, but that's what he's referring to. And then in verse 34, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they walked through Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. And then in verse 35, the resurrection of the son of the widow of Zarephath. All those things are miracles. That's what we would usually call miracles, right? God breaks in to the normal way that we think about things, and he does something extraordinary. He makes it work differently. And in every case here, the people of God were helped or rescued from danger or death. But secondly, we experience through faith something we might call acts of providence, now, what I mean by that is works of God that, con that, that control situations, but in a less extraordinary way. Looking on, you wouldn't necessarily call them a miracle, but with an eye of faith, you might, as the late pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul said, certainly see the invisible hand of God at work. We've all had those experiences. For example, the preacher in Hebrews refers to Rahab, not perishing, because she had heard the power of God, of the power of God of Israel, and cared for the Jewish spies. David conquering kingdoms and establishing righteousness. Elijah escaping the sword of Jezebel. Gideon being strengthened in his weakness, and to the others putting foreign armies to flight, etc. and etc. In all these cases, God is the one who's working behind the scenes. But no miracles seem to be obvious. This is what we may call the more ordinary working of God's providence. And the point of the preacher here in these first few verses that we've got today is that all these wonderful acts of God, both extraordinary miracles and more ordinary acts of providence, come about by faith. So in contrast, God does not always work miracles and acts of providence for our deliverance from our suffering. Sometimes, by faith, God sustains his people through suffering and hardship. That's the point of our next section here in verse 35 through 38. Another way to put this would be to say that having true faith in God is no guarantee of the comfort and security of life. It's not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It is absolutely critical that we see the miseries of God's people sustained in these verses come by faith, not because of unbelief. You see it in two ways. Look in verse 33. Notice that it begins with the line, who by faith conquered kingdoms, and it goes on there. And then without a break and without taking a breath, he continues in these verses 35 through 38 to say, others were tortured and others experienced mockings and scourgings. All this misery is received and endured by faith. 
I'll give you an oversimplified example. In my own life, about four years ago, I had to have uh, basically ankle reconstructive surgery. I had, um, from a kid, uh, middle school, turned my ankle when I was playing basketball. I did it over and over again. I hit about, uh, about 35 or so, and I'd be walking down the sidewalk and just fall over because my ankle would give way. Now, I didn't step on anything. There was nothing there. I'd just fall. It just decided it didn't want to work anymore. Um, and so I went to the doctor. He looked at it in an x-ray and said, basically, you have no tendons holding your ankle in place. It's just kind of dangling there. I was like, well, that's very, very comforting. Um, and he said, well, we can do something about it, but the surgery, uh, surgery is pretty quick, but the recovery is going to be eight to 12 weeks for you. And so I had the surgery done and I'm in a cast and I have, I don't know if you've seen these, instead of the rolling things, I had like a peg leg where it kind of looked like a pirate, you know, and, and I'd walk around and I could walk on what was both feet, but I didn't put any weight on my foot. And I had that for about four weeks. Uh, going through life thinking that my people thinking that my leg had it sometimes been amputated, but not. And I had to, and it was a pain. And I know this is very simplified. This is a very insignificant thing in the grand scheme of things, but I couldn't walk. There was pain there at times. I had to go through the rehab. I had to wear a bag over my leg so that I could take a shower. Uh, you know, you had to put a pillow over your cast so that you could sleep so you wouldn't scratch the covers and rip holes in the covers. You had to prop your leg up, which was not a nat normal sleeping, you know, uh, move for me, propping my legs up to sleep. And the doctor had told me a rough eight to 12 weeks. And after the rehab, he said, you'll be good or better than new. So for three to four months of pain and rehab, something great came out of it. Enduring that thing, that very simple thing of surgery, something better came out of it. My ankle is stronger than it's ever been. I don't have to worry about walking on the sidewalk and it just falling over. I endured the suffering to strengthen the very thing that needed to be strengthened. And so where we find in the Hebrew writer today is that he's saying that some will endure suffering for the sake of strength in him because your faith will be deepened. The other way we see this is in verse 39, which looks back on all the sufferings of the verses of the, of the ones right before it. And all this, it says, that is all the suffering people have gained approval through their faith they did not receive what was promised, or yet in this life they had not received what was promised. In other words, the suffering and the misery and the destitution and the torture of God's people in 35 through 38 are not owing to God's disapproval. Rather, God's approval is resting on them because of their faith. The miseries and sufferings were endured, not diminished, endured by faith. So let's be very specific here. When we get to the full impact of what we're saying here, in verse 35 at the end of that, it said others were tortured. God does not always turn the heart of the torturers away from their torturing of his people, though he could. Now, some might say, well, the torturers have free will and God cannot intervene. He has limited himself. That's simply not what scripture teaches us. The Bible frequently portrays God restraining and channeling the evil hearts of men. If you look in Genesis chapter 20, for instance, you've got King Abimelech almost committed adultery with Abraham's wife, but didn't. Why? God says to Abimelech, I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God restrained the evil intent of Abimelech's will. And if God can do that in Abimelech, he can do it 
to the police chief who's about to torture a Christian in the back room of a Mozambique jail. But he doesn't always do that. In verse 35, that's what we hear in verse 35. And when he doesn't, it doesn't mean that the suffering Christian does not have faith. Nor does it mean that God doesn't love them, as we'll see in chapter 12. Another example, God does not always lessen the agony of his children, but he permits them to experience not just suffering, but horrific suffering. This would be the PG-13 part of the sermon, by the way. If you get to the Hebrews, or the Hebrews verse 37 there, they were stoned and they were sewn in two. This is almost too horrible to even think about. It's the way tradition states that, that Isaiah likely died. Imagine how forsaken you might feel if death lies in front of you and the person about to carry out your death devises a way for you to die in the most horrible way possible. That has happened and it is happening to people of whom the world was not worthy, the Hebrew writer says. God could stop that. He didn't blink and lose sight of one of his own for a moment and not know how this was going to go down. This is the point of these verses. God can and does do miracles and acts of providence to relieve his people and to deliver them, but not always. If you look at Acts chapter 12, you hear the story of James and Peter. James, the brother of John, is put to death by the sword. And in the very next verses, it tells the story of Peter being arrested for the same purpose, yet God intervened and miraculously delivered Peter. One died by faith, the other escaped by faith. And so how do we wrap all this up together? Having faith is not the ultimate determining factor in whether you suffer or escape. God is. God's sovereign will and wisdom and love. Now, I don't know about you, but there's immense comfort in knowing that, that God is in control. He didn't lose control for a moment. He doesn't lose control a moment. He will not lose control for a moment. It is a great relief and peace to know that there is a higher explanation for my pain or my pleasure than whether I have enough faith. Would it not be horrible to have to believe that on top of your sufferings, you had to add the phrase, it must be because I lack faith. As believers, understanding God's sovereignty, we cannot look into the face of the dying and say or imply, if you had faith, you would live. But we can say rather, trust in God. Because whether you live by faith or die by faith, God will take care of those who trust in him. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And ultimately, it is God and not we who decide whether and how we die. He has his purpose. They are sometimes hidden from us. And faith means we believe that they are good. And that leads to the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 12. The common feature of the faith that escapes suffering and the faith that endures suffering is this. Both of them involve believing that God himself is better than what life can give to you now and better than what death can take from you later. Did you hear that? Need to hear that one again? Both the endurance of faith and the suffering of faith, both of them involve believing that God himself is better than what life can give to you now and better than what death can take from you later. When you can have it all, faith says God is better. 
When you lose it all, faith says God is better. In other words, faith is utterly in love with all that God will be for us beyond the grave. Faith loves God more than life. Faith loves God more than family. Faith loves God more than the job or the retirement plan or ministry or writing books or building the dream home or making the first million. Faith says, whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture, I will love him. I want to read chapter 12, just one through two for you again as I close. It's just a way of encouraging you this morning as we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses in our faith. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We endure because God loves us and because we serve him who is in control. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.